Hello, everybody. What we have today is a live recording. Pretty exciting from uh, an event we did at Moses Brown School in Providence, Rhode Island on Tuesday, October 10th. And uh, it's my partner, uh, Tina Kane. She uh, books all the poets for the podcast, and she is a Rhode Island Poet Laureate herself. She sat down with uh, Matthew Zapruder, and I have a little uh, blurb here about Matthew and his uh, accomplishments um, that I'm going to read to you real quick just to give you a little background. So, Matthew Zapruder is the author of four collections of poetry, his most recent Come On All You Ghosts was the New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and his prose volume, Why Poetry, was released by Echo Press HarperCollins in August 2017. A 2011 Guggenheim Fellow, Zapruder is also editor-at-large at Wave Books, and from 2016 to 17, he held the annually rotating position of editor of the poetry column for the New York Times Magazine. In Why Poetry, Zapruder examines what poetry and poetry alone can do and argues that the way we have been taught to read poetry is the very thing that prevents us from enjoying it. He explores what poems are and how we can read them so that we can, as Whitman wrote, possess the origin of all poems without the aid of any teacher or expert. Most important, he asks how reading poetry can help us to lead our lives with greater meaning and purpose. Like I said, this is a really uh, great event. Um, I hope we can do more stuff like this. I think it's really engaging to hear uh, people like these two great poets just go back and forth um, casually and kind of uh, flesh out the details about um writing poetry, the process of writing poetry, and how it exists in the world we live in today. I found that really fascinating. And uh, without any further ado, this is Tina Kane and Matthew Zapruder. Thank you for coming. It's lovely to see some familiar faces and some people I don't know. Um, And I'd like to thank Adam Olin and the Moses Brown School for offering us this beautiful room and for everything that they've done to help me to coordinate this event. Um, And a big thank you to Books on the Square, our local bookstore, for providing at a discount some of the books that we have on sale here tonight. Um, I'd also like to thank Atticus Allen, who is somewhere behind the velvet curtain. And he's my partner in our podcast, Poetry Dose. And he's recording this evening for an upcoming episode that we'll make. So you can look up Poetry Dose on SoundCloud if you like. Um, So I've been looking forward to this event with Matthew Zabruder for a long time. And he's passing through on a tour with his new book, Why Poetry. And when I got that book back in January, I had an advanced copy. And I knew immediately that I wanted to invite him here to Rhode Island. Um, You know, I regard my post as Poet Laureate as a a public service position, and so I consider championing his book as part of my spirit task, which is what June Jordan called the poet's public role. 
So Matthew's book, Why Poetry, whose title is not a question but a declaration, will, I think, um, be an important and enduring contribution to our cultural conversation around poetry's relevance. Because while it's a wonderful book for poets, it's very much a book for everyone. His take and his tone are so grounded and open and clear and humble that reading it feels a bit like having an inspired teacher tell you the story of how he became a poet, how poetry works, and why you can and should have poetry in your life. It's a book I wish I had written, which, as with all writing, is how I know I really love something. And so every other page had me kind of shouting yes in my head, um, because so much of his message is what I strive to transmit to young people um, when I teach um, as a writer in the schools. So as an educator and as an arts integration enthusiast, my hope is that teachers will read this book, um, but also that everyone will read Why Poetry, because it does an excellent job of illuminating the creative process of poets and works to demystify, and I would say kind of lighten the load of baggage around the form and how it's perceived and misperceived. So one thing Matthew proposes in this book is that we read the actual poem on the page before reading into it, which sounds plain enough to most of us until we realize that we often do and have been taught to do the exact opposite. So if that were the only thing that his book had to offer, it might actually be enough, but there is so much more, and you'll find out when you buy it and read it. But um, before we get started, I'd like to just um, talk a little bit um, about how I know Matthew. So we just had drinks before, but it's funny because he and I go way back, but we actually don't know each other well at all. Although I will say, and this actually has a little bit to do with some of the points in his book, that I have some sense of how his mind and his heart work by virtue of having read his poetry throughout the years. But it's a kind of removed intimacy that I think can be deceptive, but can also be true. So um, he and I met 12 years ago when I received a fellowship to the Juniper Institute at UMass Amherst, and he was my workshop leader. And I didn't know, he couldn't have possibly known this, because it's kind of personal, but it was a very strange time for me, because my husband and I and our very young son had just moved weeks before from Brooklyn to Providence, um, where we knew not a single person and had no jobs or job prospects. And, um, you know, it sounds a little bit reckless, but it was actually for us this stab at stability. Um, In any case, it was a time of great uncertainty, And I was still adjusting to motherhood and finding my way in a new community and trying to reclaim my sense of self as a writer. And I was afraid I would never write again because I had this small, adorable person following me wherever I went. And, And for a long time, I didn't write at all. And so I'd love to say that the five days at the Juniper Institute reinvigorated my writing life, um, but that wasn't the case. And that had nothing to do with Matthew. He was smart and funny and helpful. But even though I had been writing and publishing poetry for years, I had never actually taken a workshop, and I wasn't used to sharing my work with anyone until it was published. So, and I had also had never been away from my son for more than four hours, and I was still nursing. So I kept sneaking off and in the middle of like readings and talks to go pump in my concrete dorm. And I barely slept the whole time, and every time I took a shower, I swore I could hear my son calling me through the din of the spray. And I also kept telling everyone that I lived in Brooklyn, only to add a few seconds later, actually, no, I live in Providence now, which, which maybe seem at best distracted. 
So, and then the batch of texts I brought to Juniper were as discombobulated as I felt. There were beginnings of um, an epic poem that featured a young woman, a cartographer who liked to wander aimlessly in the tradition of the flaneur, and she was always getting lost in industrial Brooklyn. And she would sometimes convene with an ancient dowager who dispensed advice from a chaise lounge. And for some reason, there were also UFOs involved. I'm not even joking, that's what I brought to workshop. And Matthew won't remember this, but he was very gracious and open and full of good humor. And in being so, he suggested that I perform an erasure on my pages to see what that brought out. Um, so for those of you who don't know, an erasure is when you erase words or cross them out, either randomly or in a pattern that you impose on the text. And I use erasure all the time with my students to kind of let them see what maybe the underpinnings of their poems are. But so I went to my room and I erased a bunch of words and it felt really liberating and productive and so I erased some more and I erased some more and when I returned to Providence I just kept erasing and I was feeling less and less encumbered as I went until there were no more words to be read. And then I threw the marked up pages in the trash, dusted off my hands and had another baby. And then a few years later I had another one all the while making my way back to a life of writing, which I did slowly, and which so far has yielded three small books, three wonderful children, and um, a new title. But so all of this to say that ever since the Juniper Institute, I've kept an eye out for Matthew's work. And unbeknownst to him, I've always privately and affectionately associated him with one of my many attempts to return to writing. And when I think about my operating system as a poet, which why poetry prompted me to do, I realize that I am perpetually returning to writing. Because even when I am writing, I'm always learning and working through things. Because writing for me is a kind of heightened state of uncertainty. And it's a kind of grappling accompanied by a sense of purpose, which I feel sure will reveal itself if I can navigate my way through the language to get there. And my recurring act of returning mirrors the poetic movement of my mind, call it a loop, whose tendency I understood more clearly after reading Why Poetry. And so I think that everyone who reads Matthew's book will have their own revelations about language and about poetry and their relationship with poetry, with education, and their own education, and also about what people may need and desire to live a full and examined existence. So I've had this um, phrase, spirit task, in my head for many months, and I would venture to say that perhaps why poetry is part of Matthew's spirit task. Um, It's a valuable contribution, and I'm just really glad that he's here tonight to share it with us. So this was billed as a joint reading. So I'm supposed to read some poems, and then Matthew will read some poems, and we'll talk, and then we'll all talk together. So... um, I'm going to read a couple of nocturnes from this book, Once More with Feeling, that came out earlier this year. And then I'm going to read some new work that I'm still, you know, working out. Um, Nocturne Proof. If it isn't a mother peeling an orange for her son, my mother, my son. If it isn't a soldier hiding from choppers, heart of bamboo, it is one's own father, living in a treehouse in his own mother's yard, unable to shed the ghosts. It is his white uniform hung on the door of a pink-tiled bathroom for a final shave, or the photo of a bride in a mini-dress kept in a flowered suitcase by the door. It is a fear of fire, 
Memories filigreed like lace or birds scattered like buckshot from the tops of towers. And if not birds, then it is people pixelated to grains of sand as if information. Or children linking arms across a corridor to make a final finish line. And if not them, then one's own children climbing a shady tree suspended in the lens of their own mother's eye. If not a rush to perceive oneself, can I see? Can I see? It is a rush to hold hands through the fire, the birds and the children. It is a push to shed ghosts. If it isn't sacred space of school bus, it is ninja lunchbox and secret coat closet, an invincible way home. If it isn't never being crouched beneath a desk, it is the right to say anything unmolested. It is empire and oysters in the bay, a seagate spanning the entire state. It is restoration or a watermark above the sideboard that is not indelible. It is unavailable sky, indivisible sea. If not right action, then it is right speech or inviolate fatigue, possessing every frozen delicacy in the stop and shop at midnight. And trees shading trees on solitary streets. It is smoking in one's car, which is the opposite of breathing. It is wanting to do both all the same. And if not that, then it is having indelicate thoughts beneath the delicate leaves of trees, shades of one's own breathing. And um, nocturne starting right now. I mistook the mouth for speaking, the people for birds, the towers for totems to fire. I thought the TV was a crowd of assholes in my living room, and I was not wrong. I mistook the sky for water, hanging by my feet from a tree. I thought love was a trap, that ideas were accidents, not the other way around. But with my feet always on the ground, I would not have seen how grass resembles rain, or how upside down your banjo strains despondent. This will not be a poem about New York and death, New York has never been a delicate city. Like my many fathers, it raised me on mistakes, put me in harm's way, then swept in, nightlike, in a white jogging suit, dressed like my Uncle Marty from Staten Island, who always said stuff like, Eddie never hurt anyone, always mistaking everyone for someone else. He wept from his grave when the ferry slammed into the bulkhead that day. I know. He was not a meticulous man, though I hardly knew him. But who does not lament carelessness in the face of carelessness? Why I still mistake speaking for meaning, too often speaking of the subway and death. I take New York for my father, assholes for elsewhere, and love with its delicate strain. I take it all to a rooftop in Hell's Kitchen. Warm tar molting, water towers, the whir of choppers. And I sit with it, as if a grail will rain down on me if I wait. But there are no mistakes. Starting right now, there is just a sky full of grass. So I'm going to read some poems that are pretty recent and I'm still working on. Some of them I'm really still working on. Um, around um, work, the idea of work. I've been reading um, Studs Terkel's book, Working, that came out in the late 60s, early 70s, where he traveled across America. And um, they're transcripts of interviews with people about their jobs. And um, my dad, in this book, in this book it's like my dad's kind of 
um, a presence in this book. My dad was a cab driver in New York for 40 years, and he hated his job. <laughs> so I've just been sort of thinking about the nature of work and one's relationship with work and what that does to a life, um, depending on what it is for you. So um, this first poem has an epigraph from a Michael Klein poem called Other Horses. It's called Work. I can't stop horses as much as you can't stop horses. What is work but a horse is a beast? To be one with the broom, I bristle. Toil, tool, and trade. Work is a poem I made. Is my children, is family. A broken phrase, difficult to say. With a mouthful of teeth, sore from grief, is another kind of work. Or driving long hours through the night, only to start each day in its middle. Spartan, with a sparse meal to break the fast. A private kind of penance one man makes, while another says, we use water to start over. How Baldwin used snow from the Alps to write his way back to the Harlem streets of his youth. Whereas Debbie from Seekonk says, I'm Switzerland here, meaning you can tell me anything. And I almost do, keeping the most arduous parts of the work to myself for myself, sometimes comparing my heart to a horse, sometimes fast and beautiful, often beastly and burdensome. With my six shades of brown in each eye, I see work in every corner of the earth, the way work always finds me where I stand, list in hand, a clover in my pocket. And this poem's called Systems. And I actually sent it to Matthew a couple months ago um, and saying, oh, I never send anybody my poems, but there's a line in here from your poem. And he read and he said, I really like it. I think you should take out my line. <laughs> so I took out his line, but then I made the poem for him. So it's Systems for Matthew Sabruder. What is work but a system? A solar-powered family or animal of poverty whose hunger taste of metal is a tendency to hoard handed down, natural as disaster, like work within trees, secret language, a system of roots. The oldest machine of reciprocity and need is my mind, the grid off which I live, that my mind might also be a tree, or a hummingbird freed from its cage, my trill-tinted rose with nectar, a glow amid the aura of Etruscan women who thrill at the songs I make of their aches and appetites each refrain, a wheel within a wheel, a music of lineage, ancient as math, bright as grass. So, you know, I'm a poet, but I also have three children, so inevitably my, all of my, um, my work is bound up with every other kind of work. Um, so I have this book of photographs I got from my kids years ago of women doing work all over the world, and... Um, I've taken a couple of lines from the dialogue um, between those women and put it in this poem. So I'll do this when it's those women. Handwork. Lucid dreaming is not a job, but a steady occupation. I do not have a big dream. They are only little dreams, and right now I cannot think of one. My father read the paper while my mother scrubbed the floor. I pay a woman $100 a week to help me keep my house clean. I forget to rinse the rice because I am rushing. I wipe the counter and wipe the counter again. My son makes a mountain of suds in his hair, and we laugh as I rinse behind his ears. 
Women balance large bundles of sticks on their heads. I forget to rinse the rice because I am rushing. I wipe the counter and wipe the counter again. For ten years I fed my children from my body, kissed their fists to custom make them milk to fight the germs. I did this without realizing it. I did it all the same. I wiped the counter and wiped the counter again. If I had to live under a bridge, my children would go with me. When my daughter asks me to brush her hair, I use fragrant oil so that in a perfumed dream she will remember me with steady hands, hands that wipe the counter, that sometimes rinse the rice. Um, This one's called House and Home. I can't stop houses as much as you can't stop houses. Every home is a monument to industry. Every house has a skeleton of wood. I clear our refuse from the landing, the cobwebs from the bones, write, the poem that lives in my head, just as the bed wants to be made, the poem, just as the sheets need to be cleaned, the poem, home of living desire, home of creatures who require my touch, the poem, just as daily love aches to be sung by night, the poem, All demand and appetite, the poem. Each day I trill industrious, a hummingbird poem of mothering my nature. The poem insists upon my presence, exerts upon my children the poem. In my throat, on waking, and at night when I take to my bed the poem. In my head, unstoppable house and home of poem. Just a couple more. Um, This poem is called Body of Water, and... um, the Orlando is in the poem is a friend. He's a poet named Orlando White, and um, he is of Navajo descent, so that kind of gives context to what he says. And um, also, I like to swim, so. Body of water. Swimming is sex and death and thinking, and these things mean the world to me. So don't let my heart be brief. Let me stick with this. How water, with its perfect memory, holds my nostalgia without weight. Let souvenirs take shape without resistance. Composed as a Buddha, if I'm lucky enough, I float like a strand of DNA in a body of water, displacing that water, whose origin, mythical as my love of olive trees and baklava, is not ancestry, but an appetite traced to crescent pastries from the Poseidon Bakery, back in Hell's Kitchen. And why not speak as a family, which we did, of those cookies, with a fondness reserved for some relative who had ground down the almonds with her own bare hands. But there was no such relation. So let me stick with this vision in light of our difficult histories. Like when Orlando said, same cavalry. We were talking politics, but I saw hooves charging into a stream. They flooded my mind, the five men who jumped his brother in Flagstaff so they could smash his jaw with a brick. Sex and death and thinking. How a memory of near drowning tunes the body to tread. And this last one I I just wrote the other day. Um, um, I wrote it after... Uh, there's a poet named Andrew, or a writer named Andrew Colarusso who works at Brown, and uh, he did this great episode of Poetry Dose um, where he read a, a poem called Rachel, and um, it has to do with Trayvon Martin's death. 
So I, I met him for lunch and we were talking and then I went away thinking, oh, he's so young. <laughs> so I was thinking about youth. Um, but I was also thinking about that stuff. And this one's called Youngest Son, about mine. Youngest Son. We used to laugh and say he was naked and flying around with the stars before he came down to be with us. These days, he says, when I was dead, because naked means sexy, and he's not a baby, knows what sex is, would rather be dead. But I don't want the word dead around my kids or around any mother's son, so I say, honey, you were never dead. And he says, then I fell like a raindrop into your mouth. And I say, yes. How the other morning I also said yes, when he called fog a cloud on the ground. How he was formed is forming from rain in my mouth. Just as one day I believe he will go out for sweets and come back. Just like that. For some boys like him, it may be that easy to not be a cloud called back to its rain place. For salt tears not to fill the space left in his wake. Thanks. So... Matthew Sapruder is the author of four collections of poetry. His most recent, Come On All You Ghosts, was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and it's really great. And his prose volume, Why Poetry, was released by Echo Press HarperCollins in August 2017. A 2001 Guggenheim Fellow, Sapruder is also editor-at-large at Wave Books, and from 2016 to 17 held the annually rotating position of editor of the poetry column for the New York Times Magazine. Please welcome Matthew. Hi, Mary. Um, that's loud. Doesn't that seem loud? No? Okay. Um, so thanks everybody for coming. Thanks to Tina, who is far too modest. Um, she's a great poet and um, one of those rare students who you continually forget was a student. Um, when she, you know, we'd been back in touch and I had completely forgotten that we had met when she was in my class because she doesn't seem like a student, she seems like a peer. So. Um, yeah, it was, that was a great reading, beautiful reading. So thank you, and thanks for organizing this. And uh, thanks to Moses Brown School, which, if it's not careful, will be mistaken for a college. Um, <laughs> people might start applying and coming, so, so you better watch out. Um, so this book... Um, why poetry began out of a desire to address the sorts of questions that poets get all the time um, from what we like to call civilians. Um, the sort of thing like, what is a poem exactly? And how come I don't understand them? And why do you do what you do? And I have a confession to make. I don't really like poetry and things like that. So I, you know, those are the sorts of questions that I think all poets get or most poets get. And um, even Billy Collins gets them. And, uh, you know, I, at, after bristling maybe a little bit, I thought, well, it would be interesting to try to um, engage with them in a kind of open, direct way and try to figure out where those sorts of doubts and concerns and frustrations with poetry came from. 
And, but the book became, the book was that and stayed that, and then it also became um, a kind of, along the way, uh, a lot about my own life as a poet, why I started writing poetry, which was not to be expected, and um, what I think of it. And then also, in a way, a kind of, I guess, argument for poetry. Not that poetry needs an argument. It will be fine without an argument. Um, it will survive long after almost everything. But, um, you know, it was sort of interesting to try to think through the, my ideas of why I thought poetry mattered and what was important about it and what it could do that other things could not do. So all those things are kind of bound up together in this book. Um, so I'm going to just read a little bit from diff some different parts and interspersed with some poems. And then uh, I guess Tina and I are going to talk a little bit and then we'll open it up for conversation. So um, I'm going to read just a short section um, from a chapter in the middle of the book called True Symbols. Um, one of my uh, irrit great irritations um, that produced the desire to write this book was the way that uh, poetry is taught in high school. Forgive me, Moses Brown College. Um, uh, that, uh, that often it is taught as if it's a secret code um, and all the language in it is coded language and that um, the words in the poems don't mean what they usually mean in real life, except sometimes they do mean that and sometimes they don't and it's very confusing and you need a teacher or a priest um, of some kind to decipher it for you, which is, of course, as all poets know, not how poems are written and not why they are important. True symbols. Like so many of us, I never much enjoyed the sort of literary analysis pervasive in school that required us to figure out what the text really means and what the words stood in for, what my teachers in textbooks called symbolism. Of course, I obediently performed such poetry analyses to get good grades on my papers and tests, but it always seemed like a waste of time to me. Once I started writing poetry myself and saw how so many readers immediately assumed that the words I had written really meant something other than what I was saying and that I had somehow composed the poems in order to hide a deeper meaning, I liked this version of poetry even less. It was frustrating and even heartbreaking to be trying to make something for readers and to have the reaction be to tell me that what I had made was a deliberate obfuscation. Too many of us have been systematically taught to read poetry as if it is full of symbols that stand in for meanings not obviously present in the text itself. The reasons for the pervasiveness of this idea are complex. Regardless of why, so often I have seen even the simplest poem full of single syllable words any five-year-old knows greeted with incomprehension. And I think one re big reason is the way we have been taught to think about the genre of poetry, a place where objects are no longer what they are in the world, but symbolic. This is something many writers, not just of poetry, have felt to be a problem for a long time. In a letter responding to the question of symbolism in The Old Man in the Sea, Ernest Hemingway, this is great, by the way, you can find this on the internet, this kid wrote letters to all these famous writers, just a kid, like I think a high school kid, just sent them with this questionnaire about symbolism and all these like, crazy questions about what things really meant. And people sent these great letters back and Hemingway was one of the people who responded. Um, Ernest Hemingway wrote, this is a quote, there isn't any symbolism. The sea is the sea. 
The old man is an old man. The boy is a boy, and the fish is a fish. The sharks are all sharks, no better and no worse. All the symbolism that people say is shit. What goes beyond is what you see beyond when you know. All the symbolism people say seems to be a casual way of talking about the sort of literary analysis familiar to so many of us from school that attaches specific meanings to the objects in the story. Old man, boy, fish equal X, Y, Z. So many of us have written these kinds of essays. And what have we really learned? On the other hand, it seems absurd for Hemingway or anyone to say there is no symbolic meaning in the book. Anyone who has read The Old Man and the Sea knows that the entire book feels highly charged with symbolic meaning. But a distinction can definitely be, ma- a distinction can definitely be made between the so-called symbolism that is taught in school and symbolic meaning or true symbolism. True symbolism depends not on some words standing in for some other specific words or ideas not mentioned in the text. That kind of fake symbolism is what Hemingway means when he writes all the symbolism that people say is shit. The true symbolic effect of the text depends on a magical transformation where the things themselves, sea, old man, boy, fish, sharks, somehow remain themselves and also together create a feeling of greater meaning, one that is never specified. That is the very power of Hemingway's book, what makes it on the one hand so much more than an anecdote about some people on a boat, or on the other a heavy-handed allegory, which just repeats to us an obvious sign, something we already know. That last sentence of Hemingway's is characteristically enigmatic and can be read in many ways. What goes beyond is, I think, that experience we all want from literature, to have a perception, an understanding, a feeling, an intuition that is beyond what we know in ordinary life. That is what you see when a work of art does something to you. And what I think Hemingway is saying is that a certain kind of superficial symbolism, the idea that the words in the story or poem stand in for abstract concepts, making them abstract concept, making them physical for the reader an allegory is a kind of shortcut to that feeling, one that doesn't really work. True symbolism is the going through by means of the ordinary to the beyond. I think there is a moment in one of my poems which articulates this idea as well as I can in prose. This is from one of my poems. In this poem, every word means exactly what it means when we use it in everyday life. So when I say I went to the grocery store and felt too ashamed to ask where are the eggs, only a very small part of me means I have returned to report we have by our mothers been permanently destroyed. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Eggs are eggs, as they always are. And they are also all the things that come along with the word egg. The egg as symbol doesn't merely stand in for one thing, like a sign does, but carries with it a field of related meanings. The symbol is both what it is and something more. It carries with it a complexity that is totally dependent on, without being limited by, the most literal meaning of the word. Poem for Doom. Birds don't lie. They're never lost. They never think, 
above the earth I stole this form, or blue is the best. I listened to it, singing, my old man is far away, singing American songs, stolen from those who lived in what now is, but was not the park, which makes me love him. I'm eating an orange someone grabbed from nature. Over me, I hear controlled mechanical obsidian dragonflies search for anarchists. For a long time, I went to school in the palm of my life, carrying a stone, obeying the law of semblance. Now each night I bring it back, down to the land asphodels cover. Then I wake and take my son out on the porch to say, hello everything, hello green hills that slept, hello tree drawn on the side of a white truck, exorably rumbling towards some hole, hello magnolia whose pink and white blossoms have left it, for where, oh sweet doom, we are all going. Then behind us we close the black door with the golden knob, and sit in the great chair, morning light through the shades, always makes look like a dream forest throne. All around our subjects, the shadow trees rise up, their private thoughts filling the room. I take them like an animal with gentle, ungrateful ceremony from a leaf takes dew. going to just read a little bit from the last chapter of the book. Um, I wrote this whole book, sort of that tone of the little section that I wrote about symbolism. It's very kind of like confident and convinced. Um, and the longer I wrote, the more anxious I got because I thought I'm, there's something wrong. <laughs> like it's not wrong what I'm saying. Everything I'm saying is I think true and I agree, but yet the impression I'm giving is, is that one can talk that way about poetry. And so in the end, in the last chapter of the book, um, which is called, it's called Nothing is the Force that Renovates the World, which of course is Emily Dickinson. I mean, who else could that be? Nothing is the force that renovates the world. It attempts to obliterate um, the idea that knowingness or full knowledge is in any way the goal of poetry. It cannot be, of course. Um, so I try to like both back away and move forward towards that idea in a way that's probably completely seems insane, but um, felt correct. So I'll read just, and oddly, in writing this chapter, it, became, it was all about my dad, um, who passed away 10 years ago. Um, so it became peculiarly, like, extremely autobiographical, which is something I was not expecting either. So writing a book is a strange experience. Um, you're getting a lot of texts, by the way, um, from Titian. So the beautiful emojis. He wants to know when you're coming home. Should I text him back? <laughs> Never. <laughs> um, nothing is the force that renovates the world. Do you want your phone, by the way? The first and I think only poetry reading I ever went to with my father was at a bookshop next to Washington Square Park in Manhattan. 
It was afternoon, and there were two poets reading. I remember at lunch we had eaten and drunk to our satisfaction and beyond. So as soon as the first poet began, my father almost immediately fell asleep in his chair, leaning back his head, quietly snoring. I didn't wake him. The second poet began. His voice was much quieter than the first, and the whole room seemed to focus down into it. My father's eyes opened. His head snapped a bit alarmingly forward, and he stared at the poet the entire time while he read. Afterward, my father came up to me among the shelves and said, I love that, even though I didn't understand it. He repeated that sentence over and over, confused and distressed. I didn't know what to say. A part of me wishes I'd found a way just to ask him what the poems made him think of, what they brought up in his mind. I would have loved to hear it. It would have been such a different way of getting to know my father, impossible now. In the end, though, I know it was good for this experience to remain private. It could never have been truly translated or explained. To emerge from sleep, to hear the poems and follow and join them with a gradually waking mind, to understand them and even love them in a way that comes from language but is beyond the ability of language to describe, this may very well have been a nearly perfect experience to have with poetry, especially for someone inclined to be skeptical of it. Despite its ordinary resistance to poetry, my father's sleepy, drifting attention slipped easily into the associating movement of the mind of that second reader, the great Slovenian poet Tomasz Szalaman, and then continued in its own private directions. I have found that the poems which have meant the most to me, to which I return again and again, retain a certain sorry, retain a central unsayability, a place where the drama of truly looking for something essential that can never quite be reached is expressed. Somewhere in the poem, or at its end, knowingness stops. You can feel the intelligence in the poem truly exploring, clambering along the words and down the page, and also that intelligence stopping at what cannot be known. Those moments where a limit is reached can often be the greatest and most honest in poetry. They can come first as a surprise, then immediately afterward feel inevitable, at least for a little while. Once in a lecture, I heard the poet Ralph Angel. There's another great name for a poet, by the way, Ralph Angel. It's like negative capability name, you know, Ralph Angel. Once in a lecture, I heard the poet Ralph Angel say, Poetry has always existed and always will exist because there will always be the need to say that which cannot be said. The lyric, writes Fanny Howell in her essay, Bewilderment, is a method of searching for something that cannot be found. Poetry by nature brings us up to the limit of what we can know, and in great part, this is why it exists and continues to be written. This is why asking for a certain kind of knowledge that way of knowing we automatically and justifiably expect from other texts, anything other than a poem, limits our experience with poetry. If we imagine a poem as something to be answered or solved, we will most likely find ways to do so. But I think we would be better off to think of understanding in a poem as an ongoing process of attention. Simone Weil writes that attention is the purest form of generosity. A generous, open, genuinely focused attention 
moves us through the poem, just as it moves us through an experience, through a friendship, through anything else that means and keeps on meaning. If a poem is really good, you can't really say what it's about, that is, what its central message is, any more than you can do so for a painting or a piece of music or a person or a mountain. In response to a question after a lecture at New York University about how to understand poetry and what it means, the poet Joshua Beckman said the following, if you imagine the poem as a question to be answered, once you've answered the question, you move on. That's the end of the quote. The quality of a great poem might very well be not only the impossibility, but the undesirability of feeling as if it can ever be completely understood, that the experience of reading the poem could ever be finished. A poem is like a person. The more you know someone, the more you realize there's always something more to know and understand. A final understanding can probably only begin upon permanent separation or death. This is why we come back to certain poems as we do to places or people, to experience and re-experience, to see ourselves for who we truly are and to continue to be changed. A glow. Hello everyone, hello you. Here we are under this sky. Where were you Tuesday? I was at the El Rancho Motel in Gallup. Someone in one of the nameless rooms was dying. Slowly the ambulance came, just another step towards the end. An older couple asked me to capture them with a camera. Gladly I rose and did, and then back to my chair. I thought of Paul Salon, one of those poets everything happened to strangely, as it happens to everyone. In German, he wrote, he rose three pain inches above the floor. I don't understand, but I understand. Did writing in German make him a little part of whoever set in motion the chain of people talking, who pushed his parents under the blue grasses of the Ukraine? No. My name is Ukrainian, and Ukrainians killed everyone but six people with my name. Do you understand me now? It hurts to be part of the chain and feel rusty, and also a tiny squeak, now part of what makes everything go. People talk a lot. The more they do, the less I remember in one of my rooms someone is always dying. It doesn't spoil my time is what spoils my time. No one can know what they've missed, least of all my father, who was building a beautiful boat from a catalog and might still be. Sometimes I feel him pushing a little bit on my lower back with a palm made of ghost orchids and literal wind. Today I'm holding on to, holding on to what Nico Case called that teenage feeling. She means one thing, I mean another. I mean to say that just like when I was 13, it has been a hidden pleasure, but mostly an awful pain talking to you with a voice that pretends to be shy and actually is, always in search of the question 
that might make you ask me one in return. Send him a bunch send, of emojis. Send, send yeah. Tishin a text back. He's okay. flipping out. I've never seen some of those emojis. He's good that way, yeah. Like the, All right. okay. the anxious yet, the anxious yet uh, well-attached child emoji. I didn't know that was like an emoji. Oh. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. I'm going to sit. Okay, so I, I like have like 5,000 questions to start this off with, but all right, let me just put this down. Um, so one thing I just thought of while we were, I was listening to was, um, it had been a while since I read some of what you just um, read, but then I thought, <clears throat> well, it's a lot of pressure um, on the poem or on the poet. Um, this um, this uh, this this kind of poetic movement of the mind that you call it in the book, and this kind of um, to produce a piece that uh, can be revisited over and over again without necessarily um, being resolved for the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that is something that um, like there's a Doug Kearney poem called "Drifters After School." And I have it on my desk. It's the craziest poem because I, I, you know, I have a sense of the scene of it, but it's in this kind of crazy dialect and the kids are just, uh, in the poem, their voices are um, so erratic. And I'm not even sure what they're saying in the poem, but I feel it really intensely. And I go back to it all the time as a reminder of what I'd like to be doing in a poem. Because, you know, when I feel like I'm lapsing into something that seems very familiar and very safe and kind of wrapped up, kind of like the ending of the poem that I sent you, and you're like, and I'm like, I know, I uh, changed that line. Um, I thought, wow, what you're saying really rings true. You want to make work that one can return to that even you can return to and not be bored to tears and feel like it's, it's um, a neat package that can be put aside. But I'm wondering, having now gone through this, what it's like writing poetry for you now and with all this in your head and having articulated all of this, um, has that impacted you at all? Because it, it really is one thing to read it and another thing to have gone through the process of kind of parsing all of these thoughts and trying to structure a mm. book in a way. How does that impact your process as a poet? Yeah, um, well, first of all, you know, the version of the poem you read that, you know, I had taken my line, it was so good. I mean, that poem was beautiful. It was like, and yeah, my poem, my line was like just like that little bit of like yeast or whatever to get the poem started, and it was just not. Necess- I mean, I loved what you what you read, and I would have completely forgotten that it had had that line in it, you know, because it was. So um, I just wanted to say that, but uh, yeah, I mean, well, I guess I can just say in a kind of like purely practical way that you know, I spent many years writing this book, and I was writing some poems along the way, but I thought we had a kid. And was very busy with a lot of things, and so the majority of my writing time was taken up writing prose. It's horrible. 
Um, it was absolutely such a grind. And I missed poetry more and more and more, and I just could not wait to be done with this book so I could get back to writing poems. So, so in a way, the, the writing of the book itself proved the central thesis of the book, which mm -hmm. is that, um, that you go to prose and poetry for different reasons, um, both as a writer and a reader. And you know that impulse to be free of that didactic, logical, responsible, you know, orientation towards um, consciousness was something that is just central to my need as a person. So I think I felt super relieved mm -hmm. to be done with prose and writing poems again. I mean, I was rusty, mm -hmm. for sure. And, but I know what you mean. I mean, there was a little bit of like, oh man, I've said all this stuff about poems. I hope that the poems I write, you know, don't, don't. But, but, you know, it's like, I also yeah. kind of, forgot a lot of what I wrote, so, um, so that was good. <laughs> yeah, sometimes when I read from the book, I'm like, really? I said that? I, said I, that. I mean, I agree with that. It's like, yeah, that's true, but like, I totally don't really remember writing. Yeah, it's, it's so, this, it's that. Thing. Yeah, it's like, okay. So at one Sounds point in the reasonable. book, you say, um, too often we're taught to look for what a poem is about. And then you kind of say, well, you know, that's a really unproductive approach in the way that when one is faced with a painting to kind of focus on what the painting looks like, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's a really apt, you know, comparison. But then you go on to say that a poem is about aboutness, which I also think is really apt, but could you kind of elaborate <laughs> on what that would that be? You know, and I, I feel like maybe that's... I have a stab at knowing that because I like to write poetry, but at the same time, um, you know, it's a phrase that you can return to. Well, it almost seems designed you know. to irritate people, you know. Sure. Like, sure. Like, it's, like I, 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 I can't, yeah, yeah, I mean, like I said that, and I gave a talk at Tin House, which is this summer writing workshop. It's, but it's not, it's not only poets, so there's prose writers there, too. And I said that, you know, that about aboutness and I could just see steam coming out of the ears <laughs> of the fiction writers <laughs> but but I just meant that what I meant was that that you know why first that I just thought that that the about to poetry equals looks like in painting was a kind of interesting mental exercise it's not that it's not important what things look like in a painting but it's it, it's um one of the many things that, it, that are interesting about paintings and no one who thinks about visual art at all would prioritize what things look like in a painting and evaluate the quality of a painting because nobody would say, oh, this painting is better than that painting because it looks more like the thing it's of. Like nobody would be that naive, right? Right? We're like past that. But we are somehow not past that in poetry at all. Like we're, we're like behind. We're like 100 years behind and we're like, so, so I was trying to talk through that idea in the book and it's, you know, but... Um, when I said about aboutness, I just meant that imminence, a kind of state of heightened perception, is often what poetry is trying to make happen in the reader and maybe in the writer too. And so it's less important what the subject matter is than the creation of that state of heightened importance, which is why a poem about something that is not about something that is not important is often way more powerful than a poem that is about something that is really important, right? We've all had that experience. We've read a poem that's about some super dramatic thing and it's false, like it's completely not, it does, it does nothing. And then on the other hand, you can read a poem that's, you know, deeply involved with like the mental life of a flower or something and you're like, somehow that becomes the most important thing to you ever. So why is that? 
it's because it's somehow the creation of this attention in the, in the, in the reader. And, and like I said, the poet herself or himself is, um, is, is uh, maybe, maybe that's something that's more, more meaningful, you know. That, that, that yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned naked, uh, ne- negative capability. So could you kind of talk about what that is for some people who might not know? But then also, I got me thinking, well, about what you just said, but it also got me thinking about, um, I don't know, I, I mentioned this to you in an email just the other day, but I was saying, so I won't talk about this, but you have a background in Russian literature, I have a background in French literature, and that kind of got me thinking about the ways that different cultures come at poetry and the, mm-hmm. the, the place, the cultural place of poets in different societies. Like in France, it's like there's this kind of wonderful La Boheme mythology around the poet that really... Um, gives them a kind of a privileged place, and they can be really. Yeah, we don't have that here. Yeah, we, but they can be really kind of <laughs> deranged and demented, and 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 um, fully in a creative state and fully integrated into yeah, the intellectual life. Yeah, there's a word for that life. in Russian. Uh, Does anybody speak Russian here? It's, uh means holy fool. Right. It's like yeah, like like a kind of liberated person who can be. Uh, um, um, so, so yeah. with negative oh, capability. Yeah, so, I was sort of thinking, okay, well, tell us, you know, what that is, where it comes from, and then, you know, I was kind of thinking, as Americans, I feel like mm, we don't maybe have as cultivated a sense of negative capability as maybe some other cultures for a lot of reasons, and maybe that is tied to how we, how how we approach understanding and teaching poetry and the place that poets um, occupy in our culture. I don't know. You know. Yeah. Well, negative capability is a phrase that Keats used in a letter to his brothers. Um, uh, he, he, was, it, he was basically talking about what makes a great poet. And he was sort of working through this idea in his, in his letter and he was talking about Shakespeare and he, he said that um, in a great poet a sense of beauty obliterates all consideration. And he said, um, you know, talks talking about Shakespeare, he says that um, negative capability is the ability to be in, um, you know, a state of like uncertainty, mystery, doubts, without an irritable reaching after fact or reason. He's basically talking about how you can be inside a poem and suddenly the relative, you know, the, the ideas of what, the relative importances of things can become less of an issue than something else, like making a beautiful experience, let's say. It's, and um, it's a complicated idea, actually, that he says in kind of almost an offhand way, and so I have a whole chapter where I talk about it. But um, I kind of feel like this idea, like negative capability, is just another way of saying something that many people have said many different times in many different times in history about poetry, which is sort of relates to what I was saying earlier, that it's really about this creating of an experience of, of liberated consciousness. And, um, but it was funny what you were saying. I had this sort of horrified feeling when you were talking about it. I said, is there anyone who understands negative capability better than Donald Trump? I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's just that he, his, well, his, his, lo- his lodestar is, is um, self-interest. <laughs> so maybe so maybe it's a dangerous idea too in some ways there's no law that says it has to be a safe 
pure, beautiful idea. It can be, it can be negative capability. It could be something closer to like um, uh, nuclear fusion or fission. I have absolutely no idea what the difference is between those two things. But maybe it can be dangerous. Th- it can be a productive thing in certain hands and a dangerous thing in other hands. I think it's a capacity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's so a, anyway, you know. I don't know. I haven't really. I just thought about this because when you were saying it, I was like, why isn't there negative capability? I was like. Oh, you know, Donald Trump has total negative capability. He has like no, he has no allegiance whatsoever to not to right. the facts or what he just said or anything. He'll say whatever in the interest of. So it's not a sense of beauty. It's a sense it's a, of. Well, well, in his case, malignance. it's more erratic. It's not necessarily. I don't know. Maybe he's yeah. a great poet you know, right. in a certain kind of ways, <laughs> but for 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 evil. Um. So all right. So there's been. So I was. Um, uh, somebody sent, resent me because I had read it back in July, but there was an article um, in the New Yorker by Louis Menand, um, and he, I, I have it here, but so I, I was paraphrasing, so I was just curious because, you know, there's like a little pushback sometimes um, against some of the ideas in your book, and I, I think that he really um, was very reductive and kind of glossed over the whole point in order to make his point. But he kind of, he par- I'm paraphrasing, he said something like that you were asserting um, the less, there's this portion where you talk about Mary Baraka poem, and you're talking about political poetry, and he says that you were kind of asserting um, the less confident a Mary Baraka is about what he thinks, the more poetic his poem and like I said, I think he was glossing over it. Um, but at the same time, I've been following as much as I could the kind of the reviews since I got the book really early um, of what people were saying. And it's been overwhelming praise. And every once in a while, like, I think at one point on Facebook, I said, ooh, Upworth kerfuffles. Like there was a mini kerfuffle. So, but just to different you know, people kind of, I think... Um, subjectively, I'd say... Um, uh, misinterpreting sometimes um, for their own agenda or their own reason in their corner, but um, but there have been there has been pushback. So where have you found it, and what do you what what what, what do you say about mm-hmm. that, and how do you respond? Yeah, well, you know, you can never. I mean, you write a book, and then somebody takes something away from it. It's like a little bit. Um, I mean, you can't really then go say, "Well, you misunderstood." I mean, maybe that's on me, you know. So I mean, I can't. Well, I can uh, say it because I actually right, right. I'm just saying like, it's a little what? bit of a. Like, <laughs> I mean, I you know, well, I was Louis, like, Louis Manand, you, you didn't know. get my book, but like, but 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 <laughs> I did think he misunderstood what he, what I was saying. Yeah, and, I and, and I think yeah, I think I think sometimes people sort of leap to assume that I'm sort of saying that like nothing matters or it's all subjective or like you know poems don't mean anything or something, and that's nothing could be further from the truth. It's not. It's that's not what I think. And it's also not, and also the thing that irritates me a little bit, if I could just say this for a second, um, I do have a body of work that I've made as a poet, um, but even if you didn't know that body of work, you might know the body of work that I've published as a publisher and edited. There's an author, and uh, Sawako Nakayasu is in, in the audience right now, so, um, and including, most recently, the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Olio by Taya Majest. So I think to say that like I only support work that doesn't mean anything is factually like just incorrect and also something that somebody who knows a little bit about literature should know better. So I, I, I'm like a little kind of annoyed when people say that, even if 
you know, but then again, I wrote the book, and so people have to take what they take away from it. So, you know, so, so I don't know, but you're right. People have actually, you know, it's, it's also true that I say a lot of things in the book, and, and, it's, and I say a lot of things about a lot of different subjects, and it may be that sometimes I'm superficial about some things. I'm just going to be upfront with you all. You know, like maybe I didn't fully explore something or it wasn't quite said in exactly the right way. Who knows? You know, I could, it's, it's, it's a book. You know, if anybody in this room has ever written a book knows, you know, you do the best you can, try to work through things. You know, you, you do, you know, you take it, you know, if you take your time, you hope you get most things right. You know, and I definitely took my time with this book, so I feel pretty confident. But there may be things that I didn't say in exactly the right way and could be misunderstood. And if so, well then... I stand corrected. Well, you know, know I mean, <laughs> really, what, no, but really, what it kind of brought up for me was this kind of. Um, uh, it seemed like a willful glossing over, Maybe. frankly. No, but no, no. I mean, I, I, I feel like I can say that because I didn't write the book. Sure. So I feel like it was a willful glossing over, and then that kind of uh-huh. lit up in my head. It was like, well, now why is that? And I think the why is that maybe has to do with. Um, a couple of things, like a really wanting to stay in a certain place about a belief of poetry mm, and yeah. that it's really uncomfortable and unsettling to suddenly have um, someone asserting that, um, uh, kind of casting um, a, a real, um, not skepticism, well, I guess skepticism um, and trying to overturn um, the way people have been approaching it, which mm. has been a very safe and kind of consistent yeah. approach. Yeah, um, it's priestly. It's priestly, and I don't. I, I think that's bullshit. Well, you know, I mean, so, I, do, I do. I'm sorry. I think it's bullshit, and I don't. And I don't want my work. To, my work does not need an intermediary, a priestly cast, and like, and people. If people want to take poetry away from themselves, so they can appropriate it and use it to like to to make themselves feel smarter than other people or get jobs, or do whatever, whether they're doing that intentionally or not, I, I am against that. I'm sorry. As a poet, I feel fundamentally, like, violated by that, and I, and I, I don't, I don't, I, I do not think that that is, and I also, so the book, I will, I will stand behind everything I say about that not being true, and I can go through poetic history and go through different cultures or whatever, and, like, I just don't, I don't think that's true. So, so yes, I think you're, I, I, I'm sort of extrapolating from what you're saying. I'm saying some people wanted to, to immediately take it back, and say, no, you can't talk about poetry that way. It is a mystery. We only, we own it. Right, and, to and, create, and, and I'm to, like, to fuck you, that, man. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> like, like, you, like, that is so messed up to be that way. Like, I, I, you know, I remember the first time, are there a lot of Catholics in here? I remember the first time I went to the Catholic Mass and they went behind the curtain or whatever and I was like, <laughs> I was like, on one hand, I was like, that's awesome. I love this. Like, is God back there? Like, what's going on? So part of me was so attracted to that idea. I was like, ooh, you know. But then another part was like, oh, I get it. I get it. Right. Like, that's how you fuck with people. <laughs> well, okay. So, <laughs> okay, sorry, I'm drifting No, off no, no, but so in thinking <laughs> I mean, about I that, about I, a couple of things. So I started thinking about, um, okay, so Alice Quinn was up here a few weeks ago. Don't listen ago. to anything I say about <laughs> Alice Quinn was up here a few weeks ago to launch something with me, and um, John Ashbery had just died. And so we were talking about um, John Ashbery, and actually Beth Harrison, do you know Beth Harrison? Mm -hmm. She had posted this hilarious letter that Alice Quinn wrote when Alice Quinn was the poetry editor for New Yorker for 20 years. And so um, she posted this letter right after John Ashbery died, and I brought it up to Alice Quinn. But so 
it was an angry reader of the New Yorker writing to Alice Quinn, who was poetry editor, saying, <laughs> like, what the hell is with this John Ashbery poem? Like, this guy is nuts. What is he saying? I don't understand this stuff at all, right? And But so she wrote this, I won't read the whole thing, I'll just read the first two lines, but she wrote this wonderful response that I thought you'd really appreciate. So she says, dear Mrs. So-and-so, and it's great, because she does it on this New Yorker stationery, um, seems like with a typewriter, and then she just goes in and circles her typos and corrects them and then mm-hmm. writes at the bottom, sorry for the sloppy corrections, but I'm sending it like this. Mm-hmm. So, dear Mrs. So-and-so, I don't know that I can explain to you. So this reader wrote to her and said, you need to explain this John Ashbery poem. Like, you can't just be publishing stuff like this. It makes no sense, right? <laughs> so she says, I don't know that I can explain to you the Ashbery poem, but I can try to describe the pleasure I take in it. His poems capture something of the intonation of stray speech, little nuggets Sentence and phrase nuggets float in his poems, and their sound is their justification. And I thought that was like such a great way to respond to someone wanting an explanation from the poetry editor of this poem that seemed really impenetrable. But the so I thought that was a great response, but it also made me think of this moment when I was doing a reading with Greg Parlow, and at the very end there was a Q and A, and this. Sort of elderly woman stood up and she said something like, and can you tell me what's with all the bad poetry out there? Like all this poetry that means nothing and I can't understand it and it's very obscure. And, you know, I tried to kind of give a diplomatic answer about art being subjective and there's a kind of poetry for everyone and poetry is so flexible as a form that surely there'll be something out there for you. And I said something like, and bad poetry never hurt anyone. Um, but what I, but it brought, like, when I was reading your book, it brought it up, that moment, and this brought it up too, is that it has something to do with the expectation that people have and what they're, they've been taught yeah. and conditioned to expect a poem to give them. And then there is this, I mean, it really speaks to this emotional um, connection that they're seeking, and if they don't know how to enter into a poem and get that, or the message, or the... Um, the platitude even sometimes. Um, you know, so, people of a certain generation were really taught that, like, here's the lesson of the poem or here's the moral of the, yeah. you know. So... Yes, the whole project of the book, in a way, is something actually related to that, which is yeah. that basically it's a kind of unfashionable argument for genre. Genre is not fashionable right now. Everybody knows all the coolest work is being done across genres, and you're square if you, you know, think think about genres and I'm actually you know super into all that work but I in the book I say that I think there's something productive about provisionally thinking about genre when it comes to poetry because genre is really about function it's about the purpose of something and I think the thing this is I think this is what your question is leading yeah. to is is that people read poems expecting them to do something that they're not made to do so the book is my book attempts to posit some different purposes for poetry that are not the purposes that we might assume be taught, you know, or bring from other experiences with language. That's why it's called Why Poetry. Because the real question I think about, if you want to understand what poetry is, is not what is a poem, because a poem can be almost anything. There's, if you ever tried to limit what a poem could be, we could always just bring a great poem that, that breaks that rule. And then you would be lost in this kind of 
superficial discussion about, you know, that. But if you talk about why, why poems exist, what do they do that nothing else can do? What do they bring to our lives and our consciousness that nothing else can? And of course, there's not a single answer to that. There are many answers to that. There's not just one, but there's many whys, and there are many more whys than are in my book, for sure. You know, it's not an infinite book. But that's really the purpose mm -hmm, of the yeah. book. And so I hope that, the, that just in asking that question, the book itself like, enacts a kind of way of thinking about poetry that might shake us loose from some things that I think are really hurtful to reading it. So in a way, that's just the whole purpose of the whole thing. And all the, the specifics of it, you can argue with or say, no, that's not quite right, or what about this, you missed that, or I would say it a different way. That's fine. As long as we're thinking about it in that way, I feel like that's a victory, you know? And so, so, so that, was my, that was my idea. And I didn't know what I was gonna think about or write about when I started writing about it in that way. I didn't know what I was gonna say. Well, I just tried to say, you know, and, and so, but I didn't, I don't think I said everything by any, any close. What was, the first, what was the first thing you wrote that is in that book? The Maybe chapter about John Ashbery. Um, yeah, well, so that was that also was connected because I remember in it you talk about this frustration and even kind of like borderline yeah. anger of reading his work and like not and that's what right, I was I came perceiving. To poetry when I was old, when I was a little older, I was in graduate school in Slavic languages and literatures, which I like to call the exciting world of Slavic languages and literatures. <laughs> At Cal, um, I'd been a Russian literature major in college. I lived in the Soviet Union for a year. I spoke Russian passably. I went to Cal to study Russian literature, basically. And I got there, I just immediately knew this was a colossal error, even though Berkeley was so cool and I loved being there, but I just said I was not a scholar. Um, so I started writing, and what I ended up starting to write was poems, which was a shock, complete shock. I did not expect that. And so along the way, I took a creative writing class, and we read Ashbury in the class, I was very disturbed, I'm just shorthanding this whole thing. I was very disturbed by this experience in the same way that this poor reader was. You know, like many people are who first read Ashbury. You know, I'm sure there are some people out there who are so cool the first time they read Ashbury, they're like, yes, totally. But there's a lot of us who are like, what? You know, and, 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 and but, I was, but I also thought it was beautiful and interesting and weird and cool and I kept coming back to it again and again. And so that chapter was about... Yeah trying to reckon with that experience in a way that was authentic and like be changed by it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a long chat, well, not long, it's not that long, but it's about this a poem in Self-Portrait or Convict's Mirror, his 1972 volume that's the only book in the history of American literature to win the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Pulitzer Prize, all three. No other book has ever won all three things but Self-Portrait in a Comics Mirror, and it's a poem from that book called The One Thing That Can Save America. And it begins, Is Anything Central? That's like the first, mm -hmm. which seemed to me to be an emblematic question about poetry in general. Mm -hmm. You know, is anything central? Is there anything that's, what are we doing here, basically? Like, is there anything? And so, yeah, that's the first thing that I wrote, and then I kind of came back around or whatever. Yeah, because that seems like the, like the, yeah. the, the central. Yeah, but it was all bound up in autobiography, too. Do you think we should open it yeah, up? So I love your questions. Yeah, let's open it up. Yeah, questions, yeah. Like, yeah, let's open I don't up. know if yeah. you have questions or not. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you want Tina to keep asking questions would be fine with me, but I don't, but, I don't um, At some point, someone, one sound person wanted to know if we wanted to give people in the audience a mic. I think you can shout. Yeah, just yeah. shout. I think you can gently I don't, shout. I don't, I don't know. Atticus is... Does anybody Looking have questions? And if you don't, so come yeah. in. Hi. Your questions are so good. Um, 
not as naive and stupid as it sounds, but I want, I think about this when it happens to me and when it doesn't, but when a poem, I shouldn't say fails, when a poem doesn't, when there's no imminence, when there's no resonance, when you feel shut out by a poem or just unmoved and not interested or aggressed or whatever, is that the poem's failure or the reader's failure? It's not a naive question. It's a great yeah, question. It's, a great it's question. like the best question. It, it really, no, I'm serious. It's the, it's the, it's the question. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know because sometimes it can be just not for you. You know, that's totally possible. There's many, but, but sometimes it can be a failure in the poem. And I think, I don't know if Tina would agree with this, maybe Sawaka would agree with this, who's, who's been a poet for a long time. Told it. I mean, you get to a point in your life as a poet where you've seen a lot of poems and you can kind of start to tell the difference and maybe think, you know, it's not, this isn't just a matter of me not connecting with it. There's, there's issues with it. That, that I can see, that I can maybe help the writer get through or whatever. But it's, but it's a kind of, I just sort of assume in my own reading, if I'm just reading books, that it's just not for me. Yeah, that's what I I feel like that's just a better way to live, like yeah. than to get all caught up in like why it's not good. Yeah. You know, because like I don't, there's so much to love, you know? And like it's why you get bound up in, in, in why it's not happening. But but, you know, I could see somebody having a different idea if they really wanted to, I'll get you a second, where they wanted to, like, it was, maybe they're trying to figure something out, so they want to be like, why isn't this, why in particular is this not happening? Is it me, or is it maybe a flaw in the work or something? And that's, I think that would be, like, a perfectly legitimate investigation to make. But there's not, you know, but if you're talking about it from the point of view of you as a, like, as a, as a poet, that's a different question. Because I think if it's not happening for you as a poet, then there is a problem with the poem, usually. And it's okay, but it may be, you know, that there's something you need to push through that might take five minutes or it might take ten years. You know, it's not, it might be a personal, like, psychic thing you need to push through, you know. So those, in a way, are two different questions of that. Uh, Tina, do you have anything you want to add? Well, I was just saying, like, I mean, you, you know, I think John Ashbery's work is legitimately not for some people. Like, some people just, um, for whatever reasons, just that work does not speak to them, they can't and there are some poems of his that I cannot enter into and then others that I just completely yeah. well, connect with. he wrote with. a lot of poems too. So and, he wrote, and, and he wrote a lot of really different types of poems too but, um, but there is like a kind of a constancy in his, his vision and how he enacts it in language but um, I'm, eh, I'm, I think if, if I were talking to someone they were like, I don't like John Ashbery, I think I'd be like, right. yeah, you probably haven't read enough John Ashbery right. because but so I was he say, does so many different things. Right, and I was going <laughs> to say, know, like, like, you know, I, I think that, you know, like art is subjective. You know, some yeah, people aren't going to sure. connect with some work. Some people don't like abstract painting. It just doesn't. And so, and I think that to me is um, sad because there's so much to be seen, but I also understand that people's... Um, people people work differently. Yeah, the way poems yeah. have systems, people have systems, and some of those systems just don't jive. Now, if a poem's just not reaching anybody, that, that's on the Or poet, maybe they need you know, things but, at different times, too. Yeah. That can also be an well, issue, that's too. True There's too, different poets who, yeah. who at different times sure. have, I've needed. Right. You know, like, and there's sometimes when I'm in a certain place where a certain kind of poet who I'm, you know, just isn't what I need then. So that's like, it's it's complicated. I think your question is a great question. I think it, I don't think it was 
I mean, I think naive questions are awesome, but I don't think that question, I think that question was really, I gets also, to the heart of experiencing art in general. I, mean, I also think um, poems, and, poems and paintings in particular, or visual art, like kind of reveal themselves over time. So mm, sometimes yes. something that I, um, even if something I really liked and then come back to it, and, and I think novels are like this too. Certainly there have been novels in my life I read regularly over the years and it's always different because I'm different and I'm seeing it. So I do, but I think poems in particular kind of disclose themselves over time. Yeah, and true. that is, um, um, that's something where if like something, a poem you see sort of seems like a failure to you, but um, you bring something different the next time. I had this experience with um, certain poets who I remember, I know for a fact when I first read them, I had no idea what they were doing and I didn't understand it all. And then I come back to it later mm -hmm. and I'm like, why did I think this was difficult? It's so, it's so clear. It's like, a, mm -hmm. it's completely lucid mm -hmm. and direct. And so there is a way that sometimes, you know, I'm just not ready for something for mm -hmm. sure. So yeah, you had your hand up. I'm just thinking about that. I'll get you up there. My husband used to have this pile of John Ashbery by the John. <laughs> by the John? By the Ashbery? By the John, he was a poet, and he had it. He, he and he had it by the John, so I got Three Johns. Three Johns. That's a lot of Johns. In the John. Man. In the John. In the John. That's a little <laughs> so, uh, infinite I had a hard time with Ashbery, and, you know, there were, and Gerard, uh, I can't even think anymore, but there were a lot of poets around, and we lived near Princeton, so, you know, the, uh, Paul Mundoon or Gal would gather everybody around and we'd go and listen and, and the stack would get higher and higher in the bathroom. And I, I found with Asbury, it's like, it's like having a dream, you know? Mm -hmm. You really had, had no idea what it's about. And then suddenly, if you read it again, you know, that initial, uh, uh, where am I going? You know, when you're trying to get to the, the new supermarket somewhere <laughs> and making all those turns are really scary the first time around and you're thinking about directions. Well, the second time you read it, you've done all that. So it's easier to find yourself to the place. And that happened over and over again with Ashbury. So I, I, you know, I found out that I actually really liked him if, as long as there was this pile. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a lot of patience for people who um, say that he's a fraud. Oh, no. I mean, that that's goes too far for me. I mean, if you want to say, oh, he's not, he's not for me, or I'm not that into him, that's fine. But the people who are, yeah. like, harumphing around about how it's all bullshit, it's like, yeah, actually, you're totally wrong about that. That's, <laughs> like, that's like saying Picasso's not a good painter. It's just, like, not correct. Like, it's fine if that's not what you want to have on your next to your John, but, but right. you know, be, have a little humility, you know. So, yeah, you have your hand up. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't go into a poem anymore reading about what does it mean I'm just looking for some interesting sounds like you mentioned and how words are put together and uh, if they create an image or something like that and maybe that's just my ADD or something but <laughs> um, I like the the words and how the words are put on the paper and how they play together and that sort of thing and what they create and not necessarily looking for like you said earlier, a symbol or anything like that. Mm. It's, it feels very dangerous to be focused on epistemology or some strict hermeneutics when you're talking about poems. It's more about the aesthetic. But I think, there's a diff I think there's a big space between, on the one hand, um, a strict hermeneutics or, like a, or you know, like a kind of reading method or like a very rigid idea about what a poem could do. On the other hand, like, you know, just like, 
poems don't mean anything, that they're just sounds. I mean, if that, I mean, I'd, far be it for me to, like, you know, interfere with your pleasure. But, like, but, I mean, there's a lot of space between those two things, and there's a way to, I think, really absorb what the poets are saying and their, their, the information in the words, both in the individual words and in larger senses. But, yeah. So I had a whole section in the book which started to sound like um, a dorm room, like like major, like like bong-laden experience, <laughs> which was about basically about like the problem is is that in Eng- the English language we have this one word meaning or mean, which actually means several different things. Mm-hmm. And one thing it means is semantic meaning, like, I don't understand right. what you mean can mean I literally do not understand. You said something to me and, I, and, and it just bounced off my head. Like, I don't know what you, the, the string of words together, what they signify. You know, that's semantic meaning or whatever. But then also that same word meaning is used for significance. So as any of us who have ever been in a relationship know, you can be in an argument slash conversation with yourself <laughs> or partner and they can say something very simple or you can say something very simple and the other person can say, well, I don't understand what you mean. And it's not that they don't understand what those words mean. They don't understand, like, they don't get why you're saying it or, like, what that signifies or what it's larger. So I think that that is part of the problem is that we have this one word that covers those different things. So I don't think it is accurate to say for most poetry that it doesn't have semantic meaning. Sometimes that is true, that it doesn't. It can be very broken down and... You know, that's true for some poems, but the majority of poetry has semantic meaning that we can talk about, you know, of different kinds, whether it's a situation that is building or whether it's something else, you know, I mean, whatever, we can have a whole conversation about that. But that is not to be confused with the larger issue of meaning, like significance. That's a more complicated and different issue. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like, so I, I find that people lump those two things together and throw them both out sometimes you know, together, but I don't think you need to. I think you can, can have semantic meaning and then talk about what the significance of something is and have a different kind of conversation about that. Well, it's funny because um, I teach, I don't teach college-level kids. I'm usually, either I'm teaching adults, but a lot of times I'm teaching kids who are anywhere from 12 to 20 years old. So over the years, I've tried to come up with a definition of what a poem is that I can kind of, you know, I have a well, limited number of it? weeks. So... So what it is now is um, a poem is, a, um, is words arranged in space that the poet says is a poem. And so it used to be, it used to be well, until last awesome. year, um, a, um, a, po- a poem was a group of words arranged in space that the poet says is a poem. And then I was showing the kids some minimalist poems by Aram Saroyam, and, and this girl said, well that poem is two words, and two is not a group, it's a couple. So I said, you're right, I've changed my definition, (laughs) poem is words. And then I said, you know, actually things like people talk about sometimes, like, can a poem be one word? Does it need another word to have a relationship with in order to be a poem? But so, anyway, so, but what what I try to transmit to them is this idea of intention. So, like, a poem is so flexible that, you know, you can find any kind of, 
And, and the French have this word text, which is a great word, because it's a text, and then it kind of it's a catch-all for lots of different types of writing, which would now be like hybrid writing or whatever. But, but French has always had texts, and you could, it could be prose poems. It could be, you could call it a text, and that does it. But I think intention um, can be a really big part of... Um, you can't always know the poet's intention, but some poems really want to be about sound, and they really want to be about the way words look near each other or away from each other on a, the space of a page. And they're, they've maybe been divorced from their semantic meaning in order to do something different. So there's all sorts of intentions in poetry, so I think that's one way of figuring out what types of poems speak to an individual. And like what you're looking for is to kind of understand um, the, t- the body of work and what that, the intention was, you know. Um, I mean, like with Ashbury, a lot of times it was disruptive, but it was also really kind of interior, um, like a dreamscape that yeah. he was working towards. Um, you're so, like, diligent with your definition. I mean, I would... I mean, it's, it's very, it's very, you're being like really, well, you know, when you're, we, like, yeah. I, like, I think that's always an opportunity to be like a little mystical. And like kind of, well, but you know, but you know, like, you like, know like, I, but like I said, you know, I'm dealing with um, school age kids and so right, they're, so they're going to call they're, your bullshit out. You know, well, you know, the thing is in the beginning, you know, 20 years ago when I was first teaching and teaching poetry, I was an English teacher and, um, you know, uh, you couldn't really you can really approach it in the same way without have someone being like, but what about this? But what about that? So I tried to make it this kind of all-encompassing, <laughs> right? You know, catch-all where you know you find it and there it is. It's a group I of still words. like Ralph Angel's definition. That's an attempt to say that which cannot be said. Yes. Well, you know, try that on a seventh grader. <laughs> no, but you know chance. what I mean? Like, yeah. the, but, yeah. you know, just, I mean, just as a form. It's yeah, no, no, words no, no, no. on no, in like the space of a page. Did you, have you know? a, did you want to ask a question? Are you winding things up, or how are you feeling? You have the, you're, you, you have the mic in your hand. Oh, oh, I don't know if you wanted to ask a question or a few of them. Yeah, maybe we'll take a couple more. Or yeah, we'll take a couple more. We don't want to keep people here all night, so we'll maybe, yeah. like, just two more. Or that, I mean, yeah. But we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll be alacrity in our answers so that we don't... <laughs> I'm curious, um, as poets, do you guys read lyric essays? I think, uh, Matthew, you touched briefly on sort of work happening between genres, and I'm curious what that experience is like and how you understand poetry, like, infecting the essay or informing, or what's that experience like as a poet, and how do you feel like those essays can or do or don't carry some of the mantle of poetry in them? Um, yeah, I read a lot of essays and, and lyric, uh, lyric essays, I guess, or as I call them, just essays. Um, but uh, I don't think, I think they're not dissimilar in genre because I think that the essay is like also gesturing towards saying into the unsaid. So I guess I can kind of see in a vague way how it's, like, it doesn't really seem like poetry to me for the most part. Um, I don't know if I can like prove it exactly why not, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like poetry. Poetry feels freer to me, mm-hmm. less obligated to finish its thoughts or concerns. You know, I think it's, I think even an essay, even the most lyric-y of lyric essays it's... has this kind of obligation to it that the poem just doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I think that's a great, I think obligation is a great thing. 
You know, there's this famous idea of Chekhov's gun. Do you know what that is? That play, principle in, 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 in theater, which is that if you have a gun on the wall in the first oh, act, it has to go off by the force, the fourth act or whatever. That's not true for poetry. Right. <laughs> it just isn't. You can have a gun on the wall in the first act and it can go away. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, but in the, even in the lyric essay, I it's feel a, like there's a little, still a little kind of yeah. sense of respect. Right, yeah, there are expectations. And again, so, I, mean, I don't mean that in the criticism. I think that's a cool thing form, about, yeah. about those other genres, but I just, yeah, so I don't really um, see them as being like super related. Did you, had a question? Yeah. yeah. Okay, won't hurt you. I'm one of those that don't like the microphone. Um, <laughs> what do you think there. about um, the um, artificial intelligence that is supposedly being programmed now to write poetry? I, I, I didn't oh even know God. about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I didn't even know about that. There's, I mean, there's, there's several different, like... Um, we'll be out of jobs. I think if they actually but, could really uh, write poems, then we should be really scared. <laughs> but isn't it... So well, what, I, what I took from tonight, it, it made it feel like there's a certain amount of illogic um, to the logic of writing poetry because there, there are, yes. it's about speaking to experiences and connecting. It's metaphor. So metaphor, so Aristotle is the first example we have of literary criticism, extant example we have of literary criticism in the Western culture writes basically he describes a metaphor and he basically says that it's when you take one term and then you have another term and it's you connect the two and they seem like they didn't belong and then after you connect them they do belong that's basically what a metaphor is it's like alien he talks about the application of an alien name that's what he says and by an alien name he means the second term and so it's like it's always that it's like it's the thing that you didn't think could happen that after it happens feels inevitable. I mean, that's the mark of great art. It always, it always seems unpredictable, and then it happens and feels inevitable, or at least possible, maybe. So the way that these AI programs now write poetry, I know a little bit about this, mm -hmm. is that they just give them the terms, and they tell them the different things. They, they pre-program in the terms and how they connect. So they pre-program in the metaphors, hmm. how they should be. And then they just combine them in a lot of different ways. So it seems like they're making the metaphors, but they're actually not. Hmm. So it will never be surprising. It's not actual poetry. It will never be real poetry. It'll look like real poetry. It'll be an okay poem. It might even be a pretty good one. So if they could actually make metaphors, if machines can make metaphors, we should fucking be very scared because that will be like 30 seconds away from being obliterated as a species because that, that, that's consciousness, right? That's basically consciousness and that's not, machines do not have access and they to can't, that. Yeah. They don't have access. Well, God, the whole thing, you know, it's anyway. like Blade Runner with the machines having souls or not having souls. It's like, yeah. yeah and I'm not trying to not say yet. poetry is soulful, you know, although it is, but, but I think that would be the main, it yeah. doesn't have the force of, um, human experience behind the making of the metaphors. It has a pre-programmed thing that someone had to come up with, yeah. which are preconceived, and then it's kind of a random. And the funny and thing is these scientists of... don't even understand they're doing that. They don't right. realize so, it. You can read about this. They don't, yeah. they don't realize that they're preceding, pre-S-E-E-D-I-N-G, so, preceding the metaphors, and that in doing so, they're eradicating what is truly, they don't understand what poems are. If they understood what so a metaphor would be was, they would know that it was impossible you know. what they were trying to do. Um, 
So you know, even with like so, um, yeah. with found poetry or like spontaneous, um, right. like you know the Dadas and the spontaneous writing, where it was you know um, that was yeah, it's still coming from um, a consciousness yeah. that is human and therefore and sentient and yeah. Maybe one more question. One more question, and we'll wrap it up. So nice to be talking with you all. Thank you for coming. Hello. We need to go have a drink. I know. So (laughs) I I was thinking as you were um, reading from your your book, um, Matthew, about my role as a teacher of poetry because I teach writing at the college level and then I'm also a poet. And these, the mixed messages that come (laughs) at me because on the one hand, um, you know, occasionally I'll get critique back from some place where I send a poem to and they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's basically the message is it's not obscure enough. It's not challenging enough. I can understand what you're saying. Um, and then from the students, I, I get the, the other point of view of, you know, um, well, I'm not sure what the, what the writer is saying. What is this poem about? And wanting to unpack it um, and make meaning of it. I think because they approach it they're so much more used to reading and writing prose and they've been trained in five paragraph essays and thesis driven essays and they're looking at poem as almost an argument and I say no, 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 that's not what it is. Um, so on the one hand, you know, I feel like there's this anti-intellectualism of I don't want to go down the, the, the rabbit hole of oh, it's just creating a feeling but it is partially about what your intuitive response is to the poem without you having to say this is a poem about X. Um, so, you know what I mean? I feel like there's this, this, this like pull, push and pull back and forth between the, the poem as being understandable and relatable being a negative in, in the publishing world sometimes and then the poem being too obscure or unrelatable as the critique from the non-literary critic reading audience of poetry, like my students or, or people who aren't, don't see themselves, at, who aren't writing poetry or aren't in that world. So there's this weird push-pull, I feel like. Yeah. Does that make any sense? It does. <laughs> read, yeah. read the book. I that's what that, that, that's the... That push-pull is... I don't think this idea of like what the whole thing... I think that the mistake your students are making is that they're thinking that the the language act of the poem is a a big mass of words that's designed to communicate a single idea. That is just a genre error. That's just a genre error. Just simply, it's like it'd be like going and looking at a painting and being like, I'm looking at this painting to see what something looks like. That'd be the exact same thing. It's not, it's, so, but on the other hand, I mean, I think you can have clarity on a line by line level, even if the lines themselves accumulate to be, uh, you know, to have what, you know, obscurity in like a, Stevent, like while Stevens sense, you know, the obscure light of the obscure moon, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, not, you know, not, not confusing on a semantic level, but, but maybe not so, um, not not communicating meaning in that significance way that 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 an essay would or 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 an editorial or a journal or an article would, but you know these are all these are all you know like um, generalizations. 
they can only be really proved with the poems. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think that real poets have an instinct about that, how to, how to negotiate those things. It's just, and, and then it doesn't mean they always do it right, but like it's, you know, they're, they're heading in a certain direction. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thanks a lot. Thanks.